Well, hey, and welcome to episode eight of the Gospel for Everyone podcast. I'm your host, Brendan Krismer, and I'm so glad you're here. Well, on today's episode, Jason, Josh, and I sit down and we discuss the Jewish banishment from the city of Rome and the impact it had on the church, the theology of deathbed conversions, and then we wrestle with the question of eternal security and the perseverance of our faith. Today's episode is a little bit on the longer side as a result of the content we had to cover, so buckle up and we hope you enjoy. Hey, happy Monday. How are you guys doing? Fantastic. I'm doing pretty good. Josh, are you sure after Sunday? Uh, We'd like not to talk about it. We can talk about it later, though, for those of you who are sports fans, if you just want to commiserate with me, feel free to call. Yeah, Josh, Josh had a bad time this weekend. <laughs> I'm but. starting a support group. <laughs> um, hey, here's here's kind of the kickoff question for this morning, start some conversation. When uh, when was it that you guys realized uh, that you were old? Oh, <laughs> that is yeah. a good one. Like at oh. what point, what was the moment for you? <laughs> okay, here, here it was. All right, I got it. This is... I am, I'm getting my hairs cut, uh, at, uh, one of the barbers here in town and they cut the, they cut my hair. This is back when I was still paying to have my hairs cut. They cut my hair and there's probably, I don't know, she's a 18, 20 year old girl, right? Young, young woman. And she takes the clippers as she's doing my neck and then she runs it over the top of my ear. oh oh, exactly yeah so oh my goodness she took yeah she cut my ear hair and that was the moment i'm like oh i've crossed the line that's a line the first time they cut my ear hair i'm like oh we've we've graduated this is when was this too long ago to okay. make it comfortable. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, men, as they get older, tend to have ear hair. <laughs> and when you go to the barber, that's one of the things they shape you up to make it look good. Oh, take care nice. of you. Right. But I, it had never happened before. Yeah. And so here I am getting my ear hair cut. And that was traumatizing. Obviously, I still remember it. It's been a few all years. All these years later. <laughs> all these years. Yeah. Man, that's yeah, that's that's rough. Josh, what about you? I mean, I've come to that realization um, a few times, but here recently, we were actually at church, and there was a kid who went, "Oh yeah, I was born in two thousand and one." Oh went, wow! Oh yeah. my gosh, that's when I graduated high school. I could be your dad. Well, and you said so. You said kid, but that's an adult. Yeah, it is. They were born in 2001. That, that is, is an adult. adult. You're correct. That is an adult. But that is <laughs> They four. can go to Jersey Lilies tonight if they want. Yeah, I, I went, oh my. I was I was in high school. Like, and you're, that's when you were born? You were not even born in the 90s. You were born in the 2000s. Yeah. And like, we're in this, yeah, it was like this. Again, I've had that moment a lot, but it was it was pretty recent. Another one, and I was like, Oh, I really am old. I've been out of high school 25 years. Yeah, wow. That's that's a long time ago. 
So speaking, you mentioned 2001. Uh, I remember when I was on staff at UCYC, we had a summer staff or a college-age student that had come up for the summer to, to work at the camp. And uh, we were talking one day, and he made mention of having no firsthand memory of 9-11. He said he learned about it in school. Like that, that was his experience. And he wasn't, I mean, he was five, six, seven years younger than me, but that, that was shocking to me. I was like, oh, that's, that is kind of crazy. Cause I was pretty young, but I still, I mean, I remember it. It's one of those things you remember. He was like, yeah, no, I, I read about it in a textbook or something. I'm just, man, don't remember. Well, yeah. I ask, yeah. So I asked the question because I think I might've had that experience, uh, earlier this week. Um, or rather later last week. I'm on a run on Friday, right? Friday is my day off. I went for a run. Sorry, no, it was Saturday morning. And um, I, I'm fairly active. Like running's not that big of a deal. I wasn't running way further than I have recently or, or faster by any means. And all of a sudden, I, like my foot starts hurting, right? So I'm running along and I'm like five or six miles in and my foot starts hurting. And Usually it's one of those things like, oh, I'll just keep running for another quarter mile, see if it goes away. It didn't go away. So I stopped and I called Courtney. I was like, hey, I'm like three or four miles away from the house. Can you just come pick me up? I'm not going to walk all the way home on a hurt foot. So I get home and, uh, you know, I'm thinking I'll just ice it, get home, sit down, elevate it, ice it, do the whole thing, sit there for a half hour, 45 minutes take the ice off, try to stand up. And I was like, oh, it's much worse than it was before. <laughs> like it, it hurts significantly more. Uh, and now three days later, I'm still hobbling around like, man, it's not going away and mm. I'm still in a lot of physical pain. So apparently I'm, I'm, I've crossed that line to where I can't just go run five miles and it'd be okay on my body. Like I'm no longer there. So can we just point out the fact that Brendan's still in his twenties? So I the fact that he's talking about being old, right? He's still in his twenties. He was. He's not, he's not. He was in elementary school when I was (laughs) (laughs) graduating high school. He is the younger one, definitely, of the group. And not by a little. For you, for sure. Oh! (laughs) (laughs) Well, so here's the thing, Jason. You've always said, like, oh, I I peaked in my 30s, right? That was about when you moved to your early 30s. You've always said that to me. And I'm like, I peaked when I was, like, 21. (laughs) Like, physical, as far as, like, physical fitness goes, I was running harder, longer, faster. I was climbing more. I was doing all of that stuff. Like 21 to, or really 20 to 25 for me was like the golden age of physical athleticism. And now I'm like, every time I try to do something that I used to be able to do, it's a little bit harder. So. Mm, here we are worried about your hair. <laughs> <laughs> He's uh, like, I, I can't run six miles. <laughs> oh. well, I, well, I ran the six miles. To be fair, I did run the six Attaboy. miles. I just can't walk today. That's the problem. <laughs> yeah, that's what you have to know. It's like the recovery time is just a little bit longer. Yeah, I'm, oh, I'm yeah. limping down the stairs to get down to the green room to record this podcast and, and miserable. So Fantastic. <laughs> here we are. Well, hey, let's dive in. This, uh, this past Sunday, we kicked off Romans chapter 2. Uh, and this was, we were talking this morning, this was the longest and largest section of text that we've covered uh, throughout the course of this series over the last seven weeks we've been in Romans. Romans chapter 2 verses 1 through 16 is the biggest chunk. So by nature, there were a fair few things that we didn't either didn't get to uh, hit on or didn't get to expand upon as much as maybe we would have liked to, which related in a couple of really good questions I'm excited for. Uh, But first, I just want to hit on either any context for the beginning of Romans chapter 2 that we didn't get to, 
or I know really that last section of text, I think it's verse like 12 through 16. We didn't hit on all that much. So we'd just love to hear uh, from your guys' vantage point. What didn't we get to that's helpful? Um, well, there was one part that I, that I touched on briefly that I think does help set the context a little bit more that I was hoping uh, to tease out just a little bit more is the fact that all the Jews got kicked out of Rome. So we we get to see a little bit of this. So I was going to point us back to Acts chapter 18, um, where Luke actually records in Acts chapter 18. He says, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy, which is where Rome is located, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. So uh, Luke affirms this fact, and it's not just uh, a biblical place, uh, I'm sorry, a biblical reference. You can go uh, to Wikipedia, and there's a whole article on Claudius's uh, expulsion of Jews from Rome. So this is attested to throughout history, which just gives us, I, I think, uh, confidence in the historicity of our text. Um, but there are several places that are uh, that are attested to. And I just think that moment when all of these Jews are forced to leave, what a significant change that would have created in the church of Rome. And I, I don't know that we can truly understand that. I don't know if there's even any kind of cultural comparison that we would be able to make to understand how much the culture of that church would have changed when all of those early Jewish believers who had been steeped in the uh, worship of the one true God, who had the Torah, who knew and were looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, when that whole segment of the church all of a sudden is just gone. And all that is left are these these people who came only from Gentile backgrounds as followers of Jesus. So had no historic connection to the biblical faith. And, and they were like, that. again, anywhere from five to 11 years is the, is the range that Claudius had kicked these people out. So it was a significant cultural event in the city of Rome and would have had huge implications on what was going on inside this church. So, I just, I think it it just makes a, a huge difference in the way that we're going to read the rest of the book of Romans as we begin to tease out this tension between uh, the Jewish segment in the church and the Gentile segment. Yeah, I, I wonder too, Jason. As you're talking, I was thinking about like, I wonder, you know, how if that if something like that were to happen today, what would be the implications for our churches? So, in your history, you know, or even prior to your your history leading churches. Have there any, been any events that you've experienced that might have had a similar or, or close, you know, uh, ramifications as to what they might have experienced? Yeah, that's what I was trying to think. I couldn't, I couldn't think of any. I could not think of a segment of the population that we could m- remove from our church that would have anywhere the same type of effect that this would have had, unless you just came in and removed. Anybody in the church who had been a Christian for more than five years, if you've been a Christian for more than five years, or you came from a Christian home, then you've got to go. 
And the only people who are left are just brand new believers who have no history in the faith, and they are now the ones in charge. So that's the only thing I could think of. But again, I there's just I just don't know that there's even a comparable uh, cultural shift because again, it's the Gentile culture and the Jewish culture were just so significantly different, and we don't have we don't have that here in America. So I don't. I, there's yeah. no good. There's no good comparison. Yeah, I was. Yeah, I don't think so either, but I was thinking, you know, a lot of church plants, you know, we've been able to uh, know people or uh, been a part of those. Uh, you know, you do have a lot of people who have no religious background and no faith. And so their churches definitely make up uh, is a lot different, right? The things that maybe they're talking about, right? Um, you know, the things that they are pursuing, um, it's also biblical, but it just looks different in how they activate and act out their faith versus maybe generations or two before them. And so not good or bad, but it is, they just don't have any rootedness in like what faith looks like. You have so many people who, you know, when you, you plant a church, you're hoping to reach people who don't know Jesus. So you end up, you know, reaching those people and then they become in your leadership teams, they come your leadership structure. And so it does look different than maybe the traditional church, mm-hmm. right? And you may look in and go, oh, that's, well, that's not how I did it. Well, yeah, no, but you had a mom and a dad who grew up in faith. And so your story is very, very different. Mm-hmm. And so I always try to think of that when I'm looking at those churches and seeing kind of how they're playing that out and, you know, just trying to frame that into this of like, oh, they, they literally, they didn't grow up in church. So they have no context. They have no thought process. And I think we may be experiencing that. Um, You know, I do see this, obviously, I think if you look in just about anything, there is a cultural shift among us, for sure, in the younger generations and just people walking away from church and maybe not, we can get into all the reasons, that's a whole nother podcast. But it is interesting what that looks like in 25 years. Like, what will churches look like compared to what they look like now? And as the, so I'll be 60-ish right? About then. Um, what will I be like is what I think, right? When this new generation is leading the church and pushing ahead, will I be the cranky old guy or will I be, oh, hey, they have a different perspective because man, they didn't have a mom and a dad and a family group in church. And am I able to just support them and cheer them on and offer maturity and say, hey, yeah, hey, just remember this, you know, but allow them to actively live out their faith and lead. So that is a, a very good question. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, yeah, it was just interesting thinking about it. Again, I couldn't place an event or a, a historical, you know, thing around like, oh, this must have been kind of what what mm-hmm. this was like. Um, but I was trying to. Interesting thought. Um, let's talk then a little bit about Romans chapter two. Um, the the few verses, four verses we didn't quite hit on um, during your message, which is twelve through sixteen. I think there's a couple of couple of things that stand out to me. Uh, in this section, uh, just some words that Paul used that I, I like a lot and resonate with me. Um, but what are you guys seeing in this text that uh, had you had 25 more minutes, you would have expounded on? Yeah, so we, you got to stop somewhere, right? I probably preached for 40 minutes anyway. Um, those last four verses are really just reaffirming everything that we're talking about up on the, on the top, and that is this expectation of obedience in fact, he takes it so far. Um, so if we jump into verse 12, it says, all who sin apart from the law will perish apart from the law. In other words, they're not being judged by the law. They're, again, they're going to be judged by their, by their actions. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. So again, 
he's pointing to those Jewish people who have the law. They've got the word of God. And he says, look, that doesn't do you any good. Just because you hear it, you come to Sunday morning and you hear the message preached and you get convicted and you go, oh man, that's good. And taking some notes and you hear it. That doesn't matter. It doesn't it doesn't do anything. It's not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, as if owning a Bible is doing you any good. It's it's those who obey it that will be declared righteous. And then he uses this illustration, starting in verse 14. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature the things required by the law, in other words, they're acting the right way, they're acting out what the law is saying he says, they are a law for themselves, even though they don't have it. They're doing the right thing, and the doing the right thing actually trumps having the law. They show that they that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts and their conscience are also bearing witness in their thoughts, sometimes accusing and other times defending them. In other words, they have the law in their hearts when they're doing the right thing, and when they're not doing the right thing, their conscience gets them. And sometimes their conscience affirms, yes, you're doing the right thing. It encourages them. And sometimes it accuses them. So sometimes it defends them. Sometimes it accuses them. But it's their actions that dictate whether or not they're actually being obedient to the law, not actually if they have a Bible in their hand. So their actions actually trump the the owning of the law. So the Jewish people at the time were thinking, well, because we have the law, we're good with God. He gave it to us. And Paul's saying it doesn't matter if you have it. It only matters if you do it. So these people who don't even have it are doing it, and their conscience is defending them because they're doing the thing that the law says to do. So this whole section is just affirming what what I tried to share in the top piece, and that is that it really does matter what you do. Again, as he goes back up into, um, uh, where'd I go? Verse... Yes, verse six, sorry. God will repay each person according to what they have done. So that's what he's reaffirming down here in verse 12, that even those who don't have the law, if they're doing the things that the law says, even if they don't have the law, their conscience is defending them in those moments. So it's just a reaffirmation. So we were able to kind of skip over that um, because I think we kind of covered the idea. Yeah, and it's an idea we've talked about a a bunch too. I love, I mean, it echoes what James writes in James 1, right? I love the imagery that James uses when he says, anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking immediately goes away and forgets what he looks like. It's like, what are we even doing? If we're not obeying the law, what is the effect of it on our lives? And what James is saying is there isn't one essentially, so yeah, I love I love that Paul kind of echoes that right here in Romans chapter two. Right, and follow that. Like he says, do not be deceived. Yeah, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. That's one twenty two. Like just hearing it, coming, being convicted, feeling the thing does nothing. He said that's self deception. If you think that just hearing it and knowing it and even believing it is somehow doing you any good. He says, that is self-deception. You are deceiving yourselves. Don't deceive yourselves thinking that does any good. You have to do what it says. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Yeah, mine was uh, verse 11, for God does not show favoritism. You know, we you didn't necessarily talk a lot about that, but, but again, as we hold that tension of what the book of Romans is, 
these two groups of people. Um, right now, he's talking specifically to um, the religious people who, the Jewish people, the Israelites, who think that God does favor them. Mm-hmm. You know, that they are the chosen one, which this has huge implications as we continue to walk through the book of Romans. Um, you know, so there, I'm in. I've done all the things that do all the things. I, you know, I've got the special marker of circumcision, all the stuff that Paul's going to eventually lay out that actually doesn't matter. But then as a Gentile sitting there, like to, that you are now a part of the story of the creator God. And that if you live out your obedience, God will give to you as what it says, right? He will give you those who uh, do the wall, do the law will be, be declared righteous. No, hold on. Sorry, skip down. My bad. So, but glory on the yeah, verse 10, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. I love that peace. Again, if I'm sitting there as a Gentile person who doesn't have faith, who who hasn't been following God, and I'm wondering, am I actually a part of this? I'm hearing this group say, you're not really a part of this. You're, you're actually outside of this. You're not the special people of God. And then to hear this reminder of like, if you're good and you do what God calls, that's the marker. As a Gentile person, that's the peace for us. It doesn't matter that, oh, I was the chosen one. So I think in our context, for our religious people, like we said, most of us are, we think we're good. We think we're in. We think we've done everything right. We've said all the prayers and done all the stuff, but it's going, no. God doesn't show favor. He's going to judge you just the same as he's going to judge somebody else, right? It's such a beautiful just reminder. Again, I think it just is Paul laying out again just this tension that they're experiencing in that group because for thousands of years, they have heard that they are the chosen ones. So that reminder is just really powerful for me. Yeah, that's really good. And two, I think speaking of judgment, right, Josh, we had this great illustration. Um, so if you haven't gone back yet and and watched the sermon from Sunday, I, I at least hope that you go and, and find this piece of it because I think the visual is so helpful. So Jason, you drew this timeline, right? The the lifespan timeline of someone who puts their faith in Jesus. And you talk about on the left-hand side, right? Early on, all of these sins in which we are promised, we will experience judgment for. There will be judgment uh, upon the return of Jesus for these sins. You have all these X's on the left-hand side, right? And then on the right side, it's that, that end of time judgment day. And then uh, essentially you're, you explained that the time in between, right? We aren't experiencing always immediate judgment, um, which the penalty of those sins is death. We are not being struck down every time we sin, right? So it's being delayed as a result of the forbearance and kindness of, of our creator, right? It's being delayed until the time of judgment in hopes that we will be led towards repentance, right? When we put our faith right. in Jesus. So there was a question around that, that image that came in. And I think maybe it's just an understanding thing. So with it, the question was this, we didn't have any, we didn't talk about any sin on the right side of the cross on the timeline. So essentially saying we talked about the sin before we put our faith in Jesus what about the sin after and what happens to the judgment that we're being guaranteed within those sins? What do we do with that? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. And I think it's a pretty simple one. Look, when we come to faith in Jesus and we, uh, we come in repentance, like we are forgiven for all our sin. Like that's, that is the good news. Like I always help 
paint it this way. Like when Jesus died on the cross, how many sins had you committed when Jesus died on the cross? And the answer is none. All of them were future sin. Like none of your, you weren't alive. None of your sins had been committed when Jesus died on the cross. And yet God took all of your sin and put it on Jesus. So there is this thing in us that wants to divide our lives by when we came to faith in Jesus and there's a before and after moment, but all of our sin that Jesus died for was future sin. So the sin I commit tomorrow was forgiven at the cross. The sin I forgive that I commit a year from now was forgiven at the cross. So when I came to full faith in Jesus, all of those sins were paid for by Jesus. Now, what that means for us is that we continue, and this is part of that sanctification piece, that we continue to walk in repentance. So it's all of my sin was forgiven. And every time I sin, I go back and repent again. I confess again. First uh, John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Like we keep doing that. Um, I love um, like the... The Wittenberg door, Martin Luther. 95 Thesis. The 95 Thesis. He, the very first one is the life of a Christian is a life of repentance. Like every day we are walking in repentance. So that is the life of a Christian. So you're never done repenting. Repentance is not a one-time thing. It's an every-time thing. So, Mm -hmm. um, So that being said, my sin that I will do this afternoon, tomorrow, the next day, a year from now, I just keep confessing and repenting every single day. And all of those have already been applied at the cross. So they've all been forgiven and God's continuing to do that transformation work in me between the time I come to faith and the time I see Jesus. Yeah, that's really good, Jason. And so it makes you, it makes you drive to what Paul gets to in Romans six, which we'll get there eventually where he says, well, should I just keep on sinning so that grace may abound more? No, by no means do you keep doing that. So it's not an excuse to go, well, I know it's going to be forgiven, so I'll just let it go. I think of Galatians 3 when Paul talks about you're to die to sin. And so I think about it, you know, if we have these wild animals running around, so much of our thought process is, well, I can just tame them. Mm -hmm. I could just tame these wild animals. I could get them to do what I need them to do, Right. The reality is you have to kill them because they're destroying, if they're in your backyard, your backyard, right? That's how we look at sometimes with our sin. Well, if I could just tame it, if I could just, it's a a part of me, so I don't want to get rid of it. And Paul's like, you have to put it to death. That's the call of believers. Once I believe in Jesus, my call is to put to death the sin that separates me from being more like Jesus. Mm-hmm. I have to kill these things. So that's what he died for, to give me that power to do that. Can't just let it run around in our lives and think, oh, well, it's just a part of who I am. No, Paul says, by no means do you keep on sinning. And I think that helps too, this understanding of our sin, because we go, oh, it's going to be forgiven anyways. It's not a big deal. It is a big deal. In Romans 8, so this... There's another question I know we're going to hit, and this kind of bleeds bleeds into that a little bit. Romans 8, we don't have to go to Galatians. He speaks of it here in Romans. Romans 8, Paul is saying in verse 12, he says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. So it's an obligation. It's not suggestion. We are obligated. But it is not to live according to the flesh. So our obligation is not to the flesh, to live according to it. 
For if you live according to the flesh, in other words, I live to please myself. I do just what my flesh desires. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. And this was one of the things I didn't have a whole lot of time to to hit on this. When we're when you see these words like die in the text, it's not just about you're gonna you're gonna die physically. This is an eternal death. That's what he's talking about. Again, you could not sin, you could not lie for the rest of your life, and you will still die. Like this is eternal. And here's how we know. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. That's the eternal life piece. So we have to put to death the misdeeds of the body. If we're not fighting the misdeeds of the body, we're not putting them to death. And according to this text, you will die. Like there is eternal implications of not fighting to put our sin to death. If you don't, if you're living according to the flesh, you're just doing what your flesh wants to do, you're going to die. That's what Paul says. But if by the power of the Spirit, you don't have the power in and of yourself, it takes the power of the Spirit. If by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, then you're going to live. There is this expectation and obligation to put to death the misdeeds of the body. That is the work of the Spirit in us. Yeah, I, I love that. I had a, a guy come up to Pastor's Point yesterday. He was real honest, and he, he just walks up, and he was like, hey, I've sinned a lot. He's like, like a lot. Like, I don't even know if I, I don't even, there are sins that I've committed that I don't even remember. I don't know anything about them. How do I make sure that those sins, I've repented of those things, that I, I'm, I'm forgiven for these things? And I just remember thinking like, oh, the, what, great honesty, right? Mm-hmm. What, a, what a great question. But also, uh, like think about all of the sins that you're committing right now that you don't even know are sins. Like that's another For part sure. of the sanctification process. Yeah, I just told him, hey, five years from now, you're going to be repenting for things that today you don't even recognize as sin in your life. You have no clue. Mm-hmm. So give yourself a little bit of grace there and keep feeling convicted by the Holy Spirit. Ask for that over and over and over again so that we can put sin to death, which is the entire sanctification process to begin with, right? If we want to look more like Jesus every day, that means looking less and less sinful as much as we possibly can, recognizing it in ourselves. I would go uh, back to what we said yesterday. Like, it's not about perfection. It's mm -hmm. about persistence. Are you persistently, every time it comes up, oh my gosh, there it is again. And I'm putting it to death again. It's not perfection. None of us are going to reach perfection. But is it about persistence? I just keep doing it over and over, day after day. I'm putting sin to death. I'm fighting for holiness every day. Yeah, right. What does Paul say about the perseverance of his faith? Right, like that's. I feel like this is what he's talking about. Day after day, we are just walking this road that we know we've been called to walk. The whole, yeah, the whole journey. It's not a a short term uh, piece of it. So it's it's the entirety of our life that God is going to judge us on. And and the hopes is again, like you said, Jason, yesterday, so good. You just brought up is that we each day are looking at moving the ball just a little bit forward. Yeah. Just a little bit forward, just a little bit forward again with the hopes that if I look back a year from now, I'm further along in the journey, further along in the journey. I'm further along in the journey. And and I'm just making these incremental steps, Mm -hmm. right? And, And sometimes, man, I experience huge mountaintops. And I feel like we're, I'm doing really good. And then other times it is more valley and it's hard and it is a grind. And I think that's what people miss about the our faith. So much of our faith is these, when we first come to Jesus for so many people, it may be these huge experiential moments 
these huge mountaintop moments. I was at a church camp and felt God talk to me, or man, I was lying dead and then God brought me back to the huge mountaintop moments. And then it's like, okay, now from here on, I have to grind it out. And we just aren't great at that. We're not great at this persistence of just walking. Eugene Peterson has that book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, mm-hmm. right? And it's, it's such a great book if you've not read it, but, but that picture always stays with me. That it is just this long uphill journey and climb to reach the mountaintop that is eternal life. And I just got to keep doing it day. And so we got to develop these disciplines and these spiritual things. That's why it's so important that we're praying and reading our Bible daily, mm-hmm. right? Because that reading our Bible will will drive in us in the direction to go, oh, hey, you see this, Josh? You, because that's our foundation. And if we don't have that anchor, it's yeah. really easy to drift off course, yeah. right? Really so easy to drift off course. So we— we pull ourselves in. And so that daily discipline of doing those kind of things help us to go, oh, that's in my life. I need to kill that, right? It's not just coming to church. It's doing the other things too. And the reality of that too, Josh, is like if you've ever climbed a mountain, it's a grind. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's a grind to get up a mountain, right? So though we're going to experience the fruit of the spirit, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, we're going to experience some of the glory by the grace of God. Like it will be work. Like this is a grind to keep moving in this direction over and over again, especially, I mean, if you're a Christian early in life, if you're a Christian for 40, 50, 60 years of your life, like you will continue to grind. uh, And that's the perseverance that we're called to. That does raise another question though, Jason. So we're talking about people who earlier in their life, at least a few years have made a decision to follow Jesus. What about the people who make a decision to follow Jesus with days left to live on their deathbed? Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, uh, we actually had somebody. Actually, I had two people yesterday at Pastor's Point that 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 came to me and asked me about that. They're looking at that sanctification piece and like, well, wait, what about those people who don't have time for the sanctifying work? Mm-hmm. So you've got uh, one of them mentioned the thief on the cross, which that one always um, gets <laughs> me a little bit. So let me just tell you why the thief on the cross is Old Covenant. So I'm going to get deep in the weeds here. So I'm going to try to help people. Hold on. If you all could see his face right now, it's like he knew he had to keep going because he brought it up, right? He was like, oh, do I have to? Yep, I got to do it. So go ahead, buddy. Yeah, I see it. Go go for it. So it's the thief on the cross is Old Covenant. All right. So I know it's in the New Testament. So we think about the Gospels and we think it's the New Testament, but it's actually Old Covenant. Again, remember, we do it every week. We take communion. What did Jesus say at communion? that this blood is the blood of the new covenant. The new covenant does not begin until the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. So we get this question about baptism a lot. People say, well, what what about the thief on the cross? He wasn't baptized. Yeah, yeah, there was no such thing as Christian baptism. When the thief on the cross was, there was no such, it didn't exist. Romans 6 says that baptism is a picture of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. We were baptized into his death in order that we were raised to life in him. Just as he was raised from the dead, we too are raised to new life. There was, when Jesus is having this conversation with the thief on the cross, Jesus had not yet died. He was not buried and he had not resurrected. So none of that, none of that is new covenant. He is old covenant. So when you think about the thief on the cross, you can't apply it to post-resurrection Christianity. It's a, it's a completely different thing. However, that being said, What about the person who prays the prayer on their deathbed? They come to faith in the last week, days, moments, hours. 
somebody came up and said, my, my dad, who was an atheist all of his life, um, came to faith finally right, like right before he, hours before he died. Do you think he's saved? To which I say, I can't ever answer about somebody being saved. Specifically, do I think that someone can be saved in the last hours? Theoretically, 100%. God has the power to transform a heart in the very last moment, 100%. That that, that moment, again, look back to our text and what, what does our text say was what the sanctification was trying to achieve. Like, uh, go back to our text, chapter two. He says, look, in his forbearance and patience, look, we're in verse four, um, do, do not, sh- or are you showing contempt for the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. Like the repentance piece is the sanctification. That is what he's trying to get us to. So if that person in their last hours does fully repent, that is the picture of sanctification. They didn't have a chance to live it out over years, decades, months, whatever, but they did articulate what he's trying to achieve in this moment. The reason they're that he did not send his wrath immediately was to give people time to repent. Um, First Timothy talks about this same thing, right? That God is not willing that anyone should perish, but all to come to repentance. He is patient with you. That's it's the same idea that he's talking about here in Romans two. He's being patient. He isn't coming back right now. Years like a thousand days. Uh, I'm sorry, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. He's waiting. He's being patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So the repentance piece in that last hour or moment or day or week, that is the sanctification piece that that God is looking for. That's why he waited. That's why he's waiting is to get people to come to repentance. And I, so I always get this question too, as a pastor has answered it quite a bit. I would, I always want to frame it of, although, yes, God can do whatever God wants to do, um, if if that person, um, I'm with you, God, yes, he can for sure save people. Because the mystery of salvation is I don't know how he saved me, right? So it's, it's all that. But I always shift it to think more of, man, that person missed out on so many of the things that I have gotten to experience because I follow Jesus. So if they are an atheist to the deathbed, man, they have missed out on so many blessings. And yes, is eternity fantastic? 100%. But because of my sanctification here on earth, I have got to experience and see God do some incredible things. And Paul's kind of, he talks about this to the Jewish people here in a little bit of like, man, you have God's word. You are his people. You have those stories. You've got to experience these good things. So yes, by all means, can God do that? 100%. But if you're listening going, well, I'll just wait till the end. That's number one, foolish. Number two, you are going to like every, I always tell people all the time, everything in my life, my family, my kids, this now, like everything is because I said yes to Jesus. And when I look at my friends or family who haven't said that in the, in some of the misery and heartache that they experience because they don't follow, 
right? Not that my life is easy. It's just, I have hope. Like I really have this hope now to get through this thing. And so again, I I don't want to wreck anybody just wait to the last. And again, we as believers, we get to experience really good things in our life. And so that's always the driver. I think that's why we're always trying to push people. Hey, make that decision, follow Jesus. Yes, it's going to be hard, but man, it is so worth it. So let me jump, piggyback off of that a little bit. Yeah, two things. One, it is foolish to wait. We're going to be doing a funeral this weekend of somebody who woke up and had no idea that that day was their last day. Like this idea that somehow I'm going to have the have a chance to have a deathbed con- con- conversion. You're not granted that chance. Like mm-hmm. I've got, I know three people in the last month who've died and none of them were old. Sure. And when I mean, they were all under 60. And they didn't have an opportunity to have a deathbed. They didn't get the chance. And so to to bank on the fact that I'm going to get a chance to pray the prayer, get dunked, do the thing, repent of my sin in the last hour, that's, that is so foolish. It's so foolish. The second thing, when somebody came up and asked me about this uh, on Sunday, I'm like, well, look, I've only got a select amount of time. I'm not addressing this because that's the anomaly. That last moment conversation, conversion is the anomaly. Everybody that I'm preaching to, the the hundreds of people in that room, that's not their story. I need to preach to them. They're they're the ones sitting there. I need to preach to them. I need to talk to where they are at. That none of them are on their deathbed in that moment. They need to come to faith now. They need to recognize that repentance is important now. Like, So I was preaching to the people in the room. I wasn't trying to preach to this exception to the rule. When we think about the thief on the cross, he is the exception. He's not the norm. Um, so we don't want to make make big theological claims out of what is the abnormal uh, story in the scripture. So the normal is you come to faith and you repent and you are sanctified every single day of your life. That is the normal expectation for those who are followers of Jesus. So we don't want to try to base our theological understanding on the abnormal story. We want to we want to base it on the normative expectation of followers of Jesus. I think about too the we we talked about this parable of the wheat and the weeds um, in Matthew thirteen. Um, you know, you have all the weeds and the weeds, and weeds are growing up with the wheat. And the guy's like, "Should we pull them?" That's what the workers say. And the, and the guy's like, "No, no, leave them because because we don't know. You may pull a good one out, or you don't know that it actually may sprout up and become a weed because you showed that example of they look so similar, and you have no idea until the end." So it's actually harvest time. You don't know which one is which, right? Which is then, but on the last days, God's going to pull the weed and throw them away into the fire and he's going to keep the wheat. But but that that thought process as you were preaching that out is like, you don't know when that moment of change. And I love you asked the question in that you said, how many of you 20 years ago mm-hmm. would have been the weed that was pulled? Aren't you grateful yeah. that God was patient and waited because yeah. you would have been done? Mm-hmm. And then you framed it. How many of you have grandkids and kids who are weeds? And we don't want the judgment yet Mm -hmm. because they would experience it and they would be out. And they have an opportunity to change, right? That's the hope that we have in Jesus. And such a powerful picture of, of that. So if you haven't listened to that, summer, it's really powerful too. But the, it's the illustration, right? That they look identical. And you're like, oh, yeah. And so, man, thank God he is patient with me. Yeah. He is kind. And that's that's what that picture of Paul is saying. He has been so patient and kind with you. But I love you say, don't mistake kindness for weakness. Mm-hmm. Or and, acceptance. 
or acceptance. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, I love that. And I'll I'll go ahead. That was our parable series, if I remember right. I'll yep. link that down in the in the show notes of this episode. It, yeah, it was that'd be a good sermon to come back to. Um, so here, here we are. This leads us to kind of our last question, which I knew we wanted to spend a, a good chunk of time on here because it's a big one. Um, so here's the question. Uh, Jason seemed to make a uh, make the case that justification is a reversible step in the order of salvation. The implications that just uh, justification does not always lead to glorification. Uh, how do we reconcile this position in light of texts that seem to indicate otherwise? And they cited Philippians 1, 6, they cited John 6, John 10, and, and Ephesians 1 as well. So Jason, would love for you to, to bring some clarity initially on, on that question. All right. These are our amazing friends, the Hastings, and they always are deep thinkers and challenge us, challenge me with really good questions. And so um, we are going to dig a little bit further into the weeds here. So uh, I'm going to give a lot of scripture. So the good thing about a podcast is you can always put push pause or delete or whatever you want to do. <laughs> if you like, I'm out on this conversation, but I do want to try to 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 answer this question as thoroughly as I can um, with some texts that maybe are helpful. Um, I first want to just start by saying I don't think that I would say that justification is removed from glorification. I just think you can't, that there may be, to use our Baptist friends, there, there, if you have justification, it will lead to sanctification. Like it's gonna, you have to have one to get to the other. Let me, let me try to just address just a couple of the verses. So uh, give me that first one again. We were in Philippians yeah, 1. Yeah, Philippians 1 uh, verse 6. So this is a great one. And I actually did a whole sermon um, out of this text because it is a huge question. So Philippians, I'm trying to find out my Bible here and I'm getting old and can't see. So that's the other thing. Yeah. I ask about old me standing on stage about a month <laughs> ago and I had my Bible in my hand and my arm barely was long enough to get to read the text. So yeah, that so, was another one. So the text is, I, I'm sure of this, he who began a good work in me will uh, will carry it to completion. That's the text they're talking about yep. right here in Philippians 1.6. And that is such an amazing promise that there that God, once he begins this good work in you, will carry it on to completion. And so there, there becomes this moment where it's like, well, if he's going to carry that out to completion, then my work is done. I'm finished, right? Then it's all done. It's taken care of, signed, sealed, delivered. Except every time we find one of these, um, these texts that grant us this assurance, that encourage our faith, you will inevitably always find right next to it a, a warning or a, a challenge to go and, and make sure that you're still doing the thing. So, let me give you one right from Philippians. So Philippians chapter two, again, Paul didn't put these chapters. This is all one letter, all one thought. He wrote this all down. He says, therefore, brothers, as you have always obeyed. So there's the connection, the pointing to obedience, the sanctification piece, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And you're like, well, Paul, if he's going to always finish what he started, why do I need to work out my salvation? Why, why should there be any fear and trembling? He says, but those go hand in hand. They're, if you're going to have the justification, it's going to lead to sanctification. So as you have always obeyed, continue 
Continue in your obedience to work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you to will and to act. Um, We could go through a whole list of Paul addressing this issue. Um, I think about Paul when he wrote, uh, do you not know that all the runners who are in a race, they run, but only one gets the prize, run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, Paul writes, I do not run like someone running aimlessly, and I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike my body. I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave. Again, there's that sanctification piece so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. And again, if Paul just believed that that moment of faith on the road to Damascus was the only thing that needed to happen, why would Paul be afraid that he was going to be disqualified for the prize? Like that, That just doesn't make sense. Why would Paul be worried about that? Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul's coaching up this young pastor, and he tells him, Timothy, Timothy, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them. There's that sanctification piece. Persevere in them. Because if you do, if you persevere, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So again, Paul has already talked about this young pastor having faith that came from his grandmother down to his mother, passed on to him. If Again, if Paul thought that that one moment of faith was all that needed to happen, why would Paul tell him, you have to persevere in them? Watch your life, that's your conduct, and your doctrine, that's your beliefs. Watch them closely and persevere in them because if you do, if you, if you persevere in your conduct, if you persevere in your beliefs, then you will save yourself and your hearer. So again, there's always these, these warnings. Again, First uh, Timothy chapter one, Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by recalling them, you may fight the battle well, holding on to your faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and have suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. So Paul warns Timothy, look, there were these people who had faith, but they didn't fight for it. And so Paul says, you got to fight for it, fight the battle well, holding on to your faith and a good conscience. So holding on to the belief and the good conscience, that's the behavior that aligns with your belief. And there were some people who didn't do that. And so they have rejected and their, their faith was shipwrecked. So again, we could just keep going. There's so many of these. There's this, this expectation over and over and over through Scripture that, that just praying the prayer, just going through the motions, just going through the, the classes, getting the being dunked, none of that uh, in and of itself, that's not the end of it. That's the beginning of it. And if that does not lead to the sanctification piece, then we're in trouble. Um, Again, we can go to Romans. I think that they mention Romans 8 in there. This is one of the ones that gets brought up a ton. Um, in Romans 8. Sorry, let me see if I can find it here. Romans 8. So we know that in all things, God works for good. Those called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew. So 
Here's the, I think they did. Was this Romans it's, 8, no, 29? It, uh, no, okay. they didn't mention Romans, but yeah, keep it rolling. For those God he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. This is one that people often use. Like God predestined them and he called them and he justified them and he, glor- he will glorify them. That's where he leads. But I always, I always want to, Take people back and look at what it says in verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his son. It doesn't say he predestined them to the glorified peace. He predestined them to be conformed to the image of his son. Without the conforming to the image of his son, then you don't get the rest. Like that. That's the beginning of this. Like there's that sanctification piece that we are going to look more and more like Jesus. Um, again, I, I could just keep going all day. Uh, Romans eight thirty eight. For I am convinced that neither life nor death, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers or any depth can separate us from the love of Christ that is, uh, from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Like that is an amazing assurance text. But then you turn two pages to the right in your Bible, just two pages, many of you, it's one. You get to chapter 10 and it says, you will say then, well, branches are broken off so that I could be grafted in, grafted, granted, but they were broken off. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles coming to faith and he warns these Gentiles, granted, you were grafted in, that's granted. They were broken off so that by their unbelief, so that you can stand by faith. But do not be arrogant, Christian. That's what he's saying. Do not be arrogant, Christian, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. There is a continuation. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. He's talking to the Gentiles here in the book of Romans. You were grafted in because the Jews got broken off, but don't get arrogant thinking that somehow because you got grafted in that you're just in forever. If he broke off the natural branches, what makes you think he won't break you off too? I mean, that's what he says. He says, you're in, but don't take his kindness for granted provided you continue in his kindness. Um, Again, there's Jude has a great one to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God and Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. It's just such an amazing assurance passage. God is able to save you, present you before God. Amazing assurance. Three verses before that. But you, dear friends, By building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. There is this expectation. You keep yourself in his love. There is, again, you can go, just keep going. There's just, they're just all over. Uh, Jesus warned us. You will be hated by everyone, Matthew 10, 22. You'll be hated everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Colossians 1, 
once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body. That's such an amazing, that's that justification piece through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Amazing justification piece. Verse 23, if you continue in your faith, if you continue in your faith firm and do not be moved from the hope held out in the gospel. Hebrews 3, but faith is, I'm sorry, but Christ is faithful as the son over God's house. And we are his house. Again, amazing affirmation, assurance verse. Then he adds, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. So again, there's always these great assurance verses, but every time you find them, there is also these warning verses that if you hang on, if you persevere, if you continue, if you press in, if you keep going, if there is sanctification. In other words, there is no assurance that makes pursuing and pressing and striving and remaining and persevering unnecessary. There is, there is no assurance that does that. Justification will always lead us to sanctification that brings us to glorification. So, whether or not you want to say that justification is reversible, or do we just say it was never true justification? There are some who hold that position. Well, if they do fall away or if they don't persevere, it's because they were never saved. We can argue that either way. I'm not, don't care. Here's what we do know. True biblical justification will always take us to biblical sanctification that leads us to glorification. Mm -hmm. So. That was a whole lot, a lot of scripture. Yeah, and hopefully it's helpful. A lot of a lot of Paul's writings, right? You sourced a lot of uh, New Testament texts, but it made me think of uh, red letters, right? I think of John fifteen, um, and I had used this during the first service, and I ran out of time uh, for some reason, Jason. Yeah. At, at the other two services, easy. <laughs> but uh, it, what Jesus says, these are red letters, right? I'm I'm the true vine. My father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. He doesn't cut off any uh, branch and other plants. He cuts off the branches that are in him that bear no fruit. People in Jesus that would consider themselves followers of Jesus will be cut off because they bear no fruit. While the branches that do bear fruit, he prunes, so they will be even more fruitful. And then what's the reminder in, in verse four, right? Remain in me as I remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. Uh, it must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Yeah, remain. so what's, what's the important part? Again, we want to make sure that we say this out loud over and over and over again. The producing fruit doesn't get you in the vine. Mm -hmm. It is not the obedience that gets us in Christ, but it is the fruit that reveals that you are connected to the vine. Like you will produce fruit if you remain in me. If you're connected to me, fruit is inevitable. So we are not, again, not trying to say that you're working your way into salvation. That is not biblical. However, the fruit is the proof that you are connected to the vine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Ephesians 2, right? Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not for your from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by work, so that no one may boast. And then he just keeps going. He doesn't stop. We'd stop there and go, oh yeah, see? Da, da, da. No, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, 
which God prepared in advance for us to do. So there is a reason why God has been kind to us and made us alive in Christ is so that we will do the good works in Christ Jesus. And this idea of good works is for, in Paul's day, good works wasn't about moral stuff. It was actually things that you would do to help make your community better. Like it was good works, things that would produce, again, out of the overflow of the riches of God's grace overflows into the people in which I'm interacting with. Like that is what we've been created. I've been saved so that, right? So that I could then do something. And that's the piece that, again, I think you were trying to drive home for everyone. Uh, so that first the first Corinthians passage, you didn't say that it was first Corinthians, but he was in first Corinthians nine, uh, when you read about the prize and I do all these things so that I don't lose the prize. Well, when you keep going into chapter 10 of first Corinthians, Paul keeps that the, he doesn't stop his thought. We just stop it because we have chapter breaks. He says, for I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact brothers that our forefathers were under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them as And that was the rock was Christ. And that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, nevertheless. So, oh, hey, I'm doing this. I don't want to lose the prize. Hey, let me tell you why I do all this so I don't lose the prize. Because we had these people before us. Our forefathers, they did all the things. They passed through the Red Sea. They hung out with God. They had the, the, the pillar, the fire. God was with them in the wilderness. He was their God. They were his people. But nevertheless, verse five, God was not pleased with most of them. Like we joked about, most of them was all of them except two of them. <laughs> their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now these things occur as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters. Paul is driving home this. We keep working at our faith. Don't think just because you said the prayer, you did the thing that you're in. God literally pulled people and rescued them out of Egypt from slavery and got rid of all of them because they what because of why? They were disobedient. They didn't do the things he called them to do. All the promises that he said, if you live this way, If you obey my commands, I will be faithful to you. But never mistake, if you don't, I'm done. And that's exactly what Paul says here. First Corinthians, I love that. Again, that as you just keep going, don't stop that in in chapter nine. Keep going in in chapter 10. So let me add one more. So you talk about the red letters, uh, Brendan. In our parable series, we hit Mm. Matthew 13, uh, where Jesus tells the the parable of the sower, right? We all know this parable. The sower goes out and some of the seed falls along the path. Some falls along the rocky soil. Some falls along the weeds and some falls along good ground. And Jesus explains it this way. He says, listen to what the parable of the sower means. Anyone who hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, that's the evil one who comes in and snatches away what was sown into their heart. So they were never believers. The devil came in and took it out before it had a chance to to germinate in their heart, okay? That's the seed sown along the path. Verse 20, the seed falling along the rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. So this is a person 
who seemingly is a believer. They have that moment. They pray the prayer. They go up front. They answer the call. They receive it. They hear the gospel. They receive it with joy. So they're, according to this text, it's it, they have the moment, but, verse 21, but since they have no root, they last only a short time. They last only a short time. Did, they had something, but that something did not last. It was there, but it did not last. Since they had no root, they last only a short time. And when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. What is, why the language of falling away if they didn't ever have anything to fall away from? So there was this moment that they had that it seems as if they received it, it took root, it started to sprout, but it didn't have root and it fell away. This next one though, these, this is us. This is a Verse 22, the seed falling along the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. So again, it falls in, it germinates, it sprouts up, but it doesn't produce fruit. It gets choked out by the worries and riches and pleasures of this world. So it it is producing. That word that they heard jumped up out of the soil, but eventually gets choked out and becomes unfruitful. And so as you look at this text, there's four four places where this seed falls. There's the path, there's the rocky soil, there's the weeds, and then the good soil. And as you hear Jesus' explanation, there seems like only the last one is the one who gets in. Even though three of the four, that initial seed produces a plant, but only one does it actually produce. The last one does it produce the harvest. And so that's where we have to ask ourselves. So there is this moment where the seed germinated, but it never came to fruition. That's why I say you can't, it's gonna, you gotta have justification that leads to sanctification that ultimately ends in glorification. We can't remove one of those from the, from the, uh, from the equation. You can't just have sanctification that we're gonna work our way. No, no, no. Our work comes from the fact that we have been justified. They all three go in order. You can't remove any of them from the equation. Yeah, that's really good. And I'm I'm just reminded too, right? This is a process. It's for many of us going to be a long process, depending on how long we're here on this earth. And I'm just so grateful. Again, taking a step back from this specific issue and kind of looking at the, the entirety, I'm just grateful uh, that we've been given the church for this reason, right? To spur one another on in this process. I look at all of the one another's, right? Over 50 one another's in, in scripture, depending on your translation. And all of those things are God gifting us other people in him so that we can persevere in our faith with the encouragement of one another. So I don't know about you guys. I'm grateful for that. Yeah, yeah definitely. You know, I think too, Jesus's command, uh, like, hey, what are the greatest command? Hey, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And which is just the summation of all the, all the laws in Deuteronomy. To do all of these things would be to love God with our whole being. We as believers have the tendency, and this is what Jason is trying to drive us to. 
we all have the tendency to love God and it stays just in our mind. It never moves to our strength, which would be our hands to do the thing that because we believe it changes our life. So it just stays in there. But for Jesus, it was a circular thing. Heart, mind, soul, strength, your whole being. It cannot just stay in a knowledge of God. It has to produce good works that you are actually doing. It has to move out of that. And so, again, I think for so much of us, we we have so much knowledge, and we say here all the time, we have more knowledge than we probably need. We actually, as people, especially in, in Western culture, we need to do something. We actually need to live out our faith. And that is what this whole message was driving to. And there are people who are doing that. I do want to want to make note of that. For the last couple of weeks, we have heard stories of people, simple things, but huge things. Hey, man, I had the Let's Go Brandon sticker. I ripped it off my car. Hey, I threw it away. I've done those things. I started to a lady, man, I started examining my, my life. I heard all of those sins and man, really drove me to repentance and story. And so the guy coming to you, man, I've got so many sins. What do I do? Ah, we drive them to repentance over and over and over again. So we are seeing people walk out this obedience. And that's the goal. It's not just about believing. And and that does, again, I think it pushes up against some of our just culture. Our cultural narrative is just doing the thing is enough. Whatever the thing is for whatever church, you know, saying the prayer again, that whatever. We are trying to say, man, no, look at this. There actually is a process that you actually have to keep working this out in your whole life. And that, like you said, at the end is going to be the thing that God looks at and judges you by. And so, uh, yeah, I just, for Jesus, it was the whole of who we are. Mm -hmm. So it had to move out of our mind of just believing that he is who he says he is. Let me bring it all the way back around to our question from our friend, the Hastings. Um, They, they address specifically two, text from John that I just want to hit on real quick. I want to just specifically try to get to the the text that they they ask us about. So I want to honor their question here. They put some time into looking up these texts and thinking about them. So uh, one of them is John chapter 6, verses 39 and 40, uh, which says this, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those that he has given me, but raise them up the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day again. Such an amazing picture of security and, and assurance. And then the very same text, the very same conversation. By the time you get that's. John 6, 39 and 40. By the time you get to John 6, 66, it says the whole crowd is gone. They're done. They've left. They're out. And Jesus then turns to the 12 and he looks at them and says, you don't want to leave too, do you? Like Jesus gives them the chance to walk away. He says, look, all of this, what I've said is so hard that these people can't take it. And so they're gone. And Jesus doesn't look at his disciples and say, but luckily for you, you've got the moment. You're all, you're going to be, he says, no, you want to go? Like you, you have the option right now to turn and walk away to which Peter says, where shall we go? You only, you have the words of eternal life. But, but again, there was this expectation of Jesus, even in that very same text where we find this assurance 
You've got the choice. Walk away if you want to. You want to follow the crowd? Go follow the crowd. Do you want to leave too? But they stayed and they persevered, which is what got them to the end with the glorification. Let me add another one. So they bring up John chapter 10, verse 28 and 29. It says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them from my hands. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. And the father, um, I and the father are one. So there's this, again, great picture of assurance there. But we can't just start with 28. We got to back up. We got to back up to verse 25. It says, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The works that I do in my father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Verse 27 then says, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. That's the sanctification piece. Jesus' sheep are going to follow him. When he calls, they are going to keep on coming. That's the assurance. The assurance is based upon the sheep following him. So if the sheep don't follow him, then you can't have the assurance. Like my sheep know my voice. I know them and they follow me. There's an action that that comes out of hearing the voice of Jesus that I then follow him. And when I follow him, when I do the thing, the acts of sanctification, I keep walking, persevering, following him, then that's where that piece of assurance comes in. So you, I, would anybody look at that text and say, you could have assurance without the following piece? And I don't think anybody would say that that, that assurance is applicable to people who aren't following him. So every one of these texts are great in assurance, but we got to make sure that that we see in every one of them, there's always this warning, there's always this command, there's always this encouragement to keep on going, to keep persevering. There is no justification that makes sanctification um, irrelevant. You just, you have to have them all. And in that text in John 10, we know that the Jews who, again, thought that they were in were really mad at Jesus. They did not like that that's what now the marker was of true faith because they try to pick up stones and stone Jesus to death. Yeah. And they say, you blaspheme in God, that Jesus changes just like Paul in Romans 2. It's no longer just that you are a Jew that you're in. You actually have to believe in Jesus and then walk out that faith. Yeah. Right? It's, and so we already see it. And again, it, it tends to be religious people who, like you said in your message, it's not pagans who are going to be mad at this. Right. It's religious people. Right. Because we go, oh, but I've believed. I'm good. Yeah. That, but all the pushback, and that's what we see in the text here, yeah. is religious people go, wait a minute. I yeah. thought I was in. Yeah. I have to follow you? Yeah. And again, John 6, they leave. Yeah. They're all gone. Yeah. I, I don't want to follow. I yeah. want to do my own thing. It's yeah. actually easier. Like, can I just do my own thing? Yeah. yeah. It's Paul. Yeah. Essentially, Romans is Paul articulating, hey, the old is gone. <laughs> yeah. The old is gone. The new has come. And this is what it means to you. In, in chapter two, specifically to you Jews. Right. Um, so yeah, I love that. That was a really good thorough answer, I think, to, to the question. And hopefully it just gets people thinking a little bit. I just more. Can I summarize one more time? Yeah. Please, please, please. I just want to make sure somebody's going to 
somebody's going to hear this and think that I am lobbying for a workspace faith. That is not what I'm lobbying for at all. It's not what we're teaching at all. What I'm saying is there is no justification that makes sanctification irrelevant. That's what I'm saying. That that the works do not get us into Jesus, but there is an expectation that there will be fruit because we are in Jesus. It is the evidence of our faith. It is not the genesis of our faith. We are justified, which brings about sanctification. It is not sanctification that brings about justification. So we just got to make sure that we say it out loud. We're not saying by works, and it is not perfection. It is persistence. That's what he says, by persistence in doing good. That's what Romans 2 says. Not perfection in doing good, persistence. This continual march of seeing transformation in your life, that is evidence that God's spirit is at work in us. So just want to make sure that I clarify that as much as I can. We're not working our way to salvation. The fruit is the evidence of salvation. Yeah, it is helpful, especially because there's been, I mean, it's such a polarized issue, right? From denomination to denomination to different sects of the faith. Um, So I think what we're saying is, you know, being on one end of the spectrum, the extreme end of either on either side of the spectrum is not super helpful when it comes to all works, no works. What we're saying is like, hey, let's try to push to the middle because we think that's what the Bible's doing for us. So yeah, great, great clarity. Really appreciate that. Uh, And I think that's a wrap for today. Anything else? I would just say, just keep living with that tension. This tension of obedience that comes from faith, obedience that comes from faith. You know, we're, you're gonna we're gonna be driving at it so much. Like you said, it's the bookends of Romans, and so it, that's what I keep coming back to, even in my own life. How how am I actually seeing God working in my life? How do I see that evidence? Mm-hmm. Right, and so hopefully every time you leave the next forty weeks, you're at some point gonna be convicted with that thought. And th- and that's what we want. That is the thing. Like and I and I don't know the Saul for so much of for so many of us we we want the tangible. Well, tell me to take the next step, Jason. What does that look like? And and again, I don't know what that looks like for you as you're studying and reading and hearing and being convicted. Um, but again, I think just continuing to walk that out is such an important piece. So if you're feeling that tension, hey, I'm right there with you. I am feeling it my own self in my own life as I listen to the word of God being preached and that conviction to go, okay. Am I actually doing the things I say I believe? And if I'm not, <laughs> something's got to change, real change. And so I, I think you've done a great job up to this point of six, seven weeks of of creating that in us. And that's, again, what the Holy Spirit should be doing in us. So I think we're right on track for sure. Yeah, yeah that's good. All right. Well, uh, thanks for hanging in there with us on a, a longer one this week. Uh, yeah, thanks, guys. We'll uh, chat real soon. All right. Well, that's a wrap on episode eight of the Gospel for Everyone podcast. Thank you so much for hanging in there with us throughout the course of this episode. As always, if you have any questions or comments about any of our messages throughout this series, we encourage you to go to quadcity.church slash Romans, where you could submit your questions to be answered right here on this podcast. We hope you join us again this upcoming Sunday as we continue in this series, the Gospel for Everyone. Thanks, and we'll see you then. Thank you.